Lord Jesus Christ, we love you and we adore you. You are our King and we fall down and worship you this morning. It is in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So epiphany is kind of a weird word, isn't it? Epiphany. Epiphany. Uh, it makes me kind of think of the movie Elf when uh, Will Ferrell's character, Buddy, learns of Francisco's name, and he just says it over in his, over in his mind, Francisco, Francisco. That's kind of how I feel about the word epiphany, epiphany. You can, you can all say it with me if you'd like, epiphany. <laughs> uh, but that is the name of the season that we're in right now. And sometimes in our culture, when we use the word epiphany, we think of it merely as like a light bulb going off. Oh, I've had an epiphany. Sometimes we hear that line in a movie, you know, when they have a, a new idea or, or something like that. And you might even remember the first time you heard that word, and you're like, oh, that is, that is a fun word. I want to tuck that away in my vocabulary and sound really smart someday and use it. Well, the definition of epiphany, maybe today is the first time you've heard it. I don't know. Uh, but the definition of epiphany is to show or to make known or to reveal and it's usually used in a context of a great discovery. So sometimes, you know, someone will discover a, a way out of a trap. And so they'll have an epiphany. They'll have a, a eureka moment where they can get out of it. Or sometimes a complex problem is solved. That's their epiphany. So we usually don't use the word epiphany if we discover what the answer is to two plus two. Uh, we're like, ah, it's four. I've had an epiphany. Usually that's, that's an ironic use of the word. Uh, it is when a great mystery is revealed. And that is the season of the church that we're in right now. Christ has been born. Uh, we've celebrated the, the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, you'll notice, as, as I mentioned last week, our Advent wreath, we've taken away the four candles of waiting because Christ is here now, is symbolized by that Christ candle. Christ is actually here now. And our, our culture, usually we only celebrate Epiphany through singing, you know, the 12 days of Christmas. And that's, that's about the extent of our knowledge of what Epiphany is. Uh, and if you're doing your math, you'll realize that we're actually more than 12 days from Christmas. Uh, we celebrate Epiphany on January 6th, which was yesterday. And today, uh, we're just taking it as the occasion on this Sunday to celebrate this feast day. And this is the day that we commemorate the arrival of the Magi or as our translation uses today, the wise men. So you might have heard like magi also used before. So this is when the, the magi come, and as we saw from our Isaiah reading, this is for the fulfillment of those ancient prophecies from long, long ago when they come. And so we're going to be talking about that passage today. So if you have your bulletins, open them up to Matthew's Gospel, and that's going to be the text that we'll be talking about today, although we'll dabble a little bit in the Ephesians reading as well. So this is, no doubt, a familiar story. You've probably heard it already at some point this Christmas season, where Magi come to Jerusalem looking for the newborn king, and they encounter Herod the Great. Now, we know a little bit about Herod from history, and he's, he's not the kind of person that you'd want to invite over for Christmas dinner. Uh, he's, he's, not, um, he's not necessarily a great guy. So history tells us about Herod that he has quite the list of accomplishments. Uh, he has built Caesarea, the great city on the coast. He also built the city of Samaria. And at the time of this story, the temple of Jerusalem was being restored and rebuilt. And it would be completed a little bit uh, later. So all of Jerusalem, all of Israel knew of Herod's accomplishments. 
which gave him the name Herod the Great. But some historian has referred to Herod as being brutish and a stranger to humanity. In fact, he killed two of his own sons out of suspicion that they wanted his crown. So Caesar himself said this of Herod, and it's, he's kind of playing off of the Jewish culture as well. Caesar says of Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. So he has this reputation of being this vile person. And our biblical account of Herod matches up with this perfectly, doesn't it? So Herod and his court, what they kind of represent to us in this story is the pinnacle of Jewish culture. The temple that had been destroyed long ago was being rebuilt. Uh, Israel's king is starting to rebuild cities and whatnot. And so we see this, this Jewish culture is being built up with Herod at the helm of it. They also are expecting the, the Messiah to come, as we obviously have seen. So the Magi come, and they come to Jerusalem looking for the king. And so naturally, they go to Herod, and they say, we're here to worship the newborn king. We've heard about this. Now, knowing what we know about Herod, what would we expect his reaction to be, right? He's killed his own sons. So naturally, he's going to try to figure out a way to kill this next threat to his throne. And so he's troubled. He's rattled by this. And our text tells us that all of Jerusalem was troubled along with him. If the king is angry, everyone's angry, right? And so what, do they do? what does he do? Well, he goes to the scholars and the scribes of the day, and they probe the scriptures. And they, say, and they figure out, oh, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And they, dis- they discern that from the reading of um, um, uh, Micah, or Malachi. And what is Herod's reaction? Well, it's self-preservation, right? He starts to weave together a, a plan and whatnot to try to protect himself, to protect his throne. And he tells the wise men, oh, so when you go, when, after you worship the king, come and tell me so that I might worship him as well. Well, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what his real plan is, does it? So he lies to the wise men. He covers up his own fear and his own insecurity. Now, Herod... Oh, and then, and then the Magi, they themselves, they go, they worship the king, and then they return a different way. They return home a different way. So Herod had the same opportunity as the Magi, didn't he? But he doesn't worship them. No doubt he had heard about the story of the star from the Magi. He may have even gone outside on the rooftop and seen the star for himself. And then, along with the Magi, he heard the scriptures open, He knew that the king was to be born in Bethlehem. But he himself does not experience an epiphany, does he? He doesn't go and worship the Messiah. In fact, in our text, it's interesting. He refers to Jesus not as a king, which is what the Magi refer to him as, but he refers to him simply as a child, that I might go and worship this child. So Jerusalem itself at this time is covered in great mystery, in great darkness. It is troubled, as we hear and what we learn, um, we learn that they were all troubled. Now, what we learn in the uh, book of Ephesians, in Paul's work, is that this is kind of natural. This is, this is the mystery of, of the world. He uses mystery to describe the covering of the world. In verse 5 of our Ephesians reading, he says, The mystery of God has been unknown to the sons of men in other generations. So think of a time when you've been covered in mystery, right? You've been ignorant. You don't know what the solution is to a problem. Maybe you're, you're stumbling in the dark. You don't know your way out. And here, this is also the plight of, 
of Herod as well. The Messiah has been born in his backyard. He knew of the guiding star. He even knew of the scriptures. Yet he stayed in his palace. And he orders, as we see later in the passage, he orders the killing of all the children in Bethlehem. So who then gets to come and worship the Messiah? Who gets to participate in this great epiphany of the world? Well, very unlikely people. Very unlikely people. Magi. These are people who... To our Jewish readers, the people who are first reading this gospel text, they would have been pretty disgusted by this, actually. Here, these are people who aren't ethnic Jews themselves. They live very, very far away. And most likely, they're coming from Babylon, right? Which is the country that would have been, um, who had captured the Jews and taken them away. And so now, they're kind of portrayed as the heroes in this text. So this would have been, like, really jostling and startling for them. So they're geographically far away. They're ethnically far away and they're religiously far away as well. You see, ever since the Jews had escaped from Egypt long ago and that great story of the Exodus, the Jews have hated um, any sort of magicians, people who um, look to constellations and have other gods. The Jews despise these kinds of people, people who turn to creation for guidance rather than the creator himself. But this is kind of the recurring theme of the Christmas story, isn't it? Magi are coming. As we saw a couple weeks ago, shepherds come. God invites the most unlikely people uh, to his celebration. So I have a friend who's a missionary in the Solomon Islands, uh, and he has some very crazy stories that he shares. Uh, I hope that he can come and and visit and preach here. Uh, He's got family in Minnesota. He comes over every few years or so. Uh, But he tells a story of his dad uh, who received a dream, he's a missionary in the Solomon Islands, uh, his dad received this dream to go and visit the neighborhood witch doctor. And this just rattles him, because this is a man who was feared by everyone in the village. Um, he just commanded a lot of respect and, and mystery, and you never really knew what you were going to get with him. And this man's uh, home was all the way at the top of a mountain. And he's like, oh, this is going to be such a long trek, I have to take the bus all the way to the mountain, and kind of go up and... I don't want to do this. I have no idea how he's going to react to me. Maybe he's going to kill me. I don't know. So he goes. He, he uh, takes the bus as far up the mountain as it will get. And as soon as he gets off the bus, there's the witch doctor, just like sitting there on a bench waiting for him. And he goes to the witch doctor. He's like, what are you, what are you doing here? And, he's, and the witch doctor replies and says, I had a dream that a white man was going to come and talk to me about God. So I'm here to wait and learn about your religion. And he's just rattled by this, right? That kind of thing also reminds me of stories that you hear from the Middle East quite a bit, right? Of Muslims who receive dreams, and they eventually go and find someone uh, from the church to kind of interpret the dream to them. This This is the action that God loves to do. He loves to find people. He loves to bring people to his truth. And that's what he had been doing with the Magi here. He uses their confused religion to use a star to bring them all the way to Jerusalem. But that star, it's not the full revelation of God. It's not salvific in, its, in and of itself. Uh, it's, it's kind of what theologians refer to as natural theology, right? There's things in this created order that evoke beauty and wonder out of us. But ultimately, they are not salvific. They're not salvific. You know, you may have felt this, um, you know, in, in contemplating a beautiful sunset or a beautiful hike or whatnot. 
those are magnificent things, and you may even be tempted to worship them, but they themselves are not the pinnacle of life. Well, they get to Jerusalem, and what do they need to point them all the way to the Savior? Well, they open up the Scriptures. So the star brings them to Jerusalem. The Scriptures take them then to Bethlehem. So they come to Bethlehem, and that is where they encounter a Savior. They have this faith-filled journey the whole way, and the journey allows them to come to the cradle to worship Christ, the true King, with magnificence. They give sacrificially. They give these beautiful, amazing, royal gifts. And I'm not going to go into detail of what those gifts symbolize and whatnot. We can save that for Epiphany next year. Um, But at least from the Isaiah readings, uh, you picked up that those are kind of a fulfillment of the ancient prophecies, aren't they? And then I love this. I love how Matthew ends this little story. He says that the wise men or the magi, they go home a different way. Now this might be a stretch, but once you encounter Jesus, you never go home the same way, do you? You encounter the author of life, and your whole life is turned upside down, and you walk by a different way. So this, bear with me, this might be a goofy application, but maybe today on your drive home, maybe you drive home a different way, just in celebration of, your, of, of epiphany. You can drive home by a different way. I'm glad some of you are laughing and smiling. Instead of rolling your eyes, I was preparing myself for that. <laughs> oh, Rick, that's the worst application. So thank you. So again, let's turn to uh, the, well, you don't have to turn, but let's look again at the Ephesians passage. Because this dovetails so well with our Epiphany readings, doesn't it? It complements the story of the Magi really, really well. Paul tells us that the mystery has finally been made known to, uh, finally been made known to the Gentiles. That God, in his graciousness, has displayed his revelation to us. In other words, God is doing away with the Jewish theocracy, the puppet king, the, the ignorant scribes, the hypocritical priests, and he replaces it with a new international community, the church. And this is the great epiphany that we're celebrating today. The mystery of the Jews, that is, that Jesus Christ saves sinners, has been revealed to the Gentiles. Now, we are in deep need of this, aren't we? Because honestly, all of us are just like Herod. I read this story of Herod, and I think, that is me. I am Herod. And we all are Herod, aren't we? Perhaps we don't, the world doesn't see us as royalty. I don't know. I don't know how influential you are. But at least in our hearts, all of us have a throne that we see ourselves sitting upon, don't we? We are all proud of our accomplishments. Maybe we've built great and beautiful things. We've, we have elaborate systems of hollow religi- religiosity at times, don't we? And I think especially as Anglicans, it's easy for us to kind of lean on these, on these liturgies and be like, oh, it's just so beautiful. I, I know I'm saved. And the liturgy itself can sometimes be an idol in our hearts, can't it? Some of us might be suspicious of anyone who tries to attempt, or anyone who attempts to steal away our reputation or take away our pile of possessions. And we react with destruction and lies sometimes even hurting others. If you want to see the epitome of what life is like apart from Christ, read about Herod. Read about Herod. And then you'll see yourself in him. So all of us have seen a choice in this life. All of us have encountered a star in some sense. I don't know what that is in your life. Maybe it was a beautiful sunset. Maybe it was something miraculous like what the Magi saw. And all of us have heard about Jesus in the scriptures. I'm assuming if you're here today, uh, you've 
heard a little bit about Jesus in the scriptures. And all of us are invited to worship him as Savior as well. So what does that worship actually look like, though? What does that worship look like? Well, we saw in the, the Magi, they offered uh, their gifts of high sacrifice. But again, I love what Paul says in Ephesians. He says that <clears throat> we're free to give tremendously, but he describes, the riches, he, he describes Christ as having unsearchable riches. Hopefully that word just jumped out to you, because that's, that's a weird word, right? Unsearchable. Other translations translate that word as innumerable or bottomless, or limitless. This is basically a, a deep, deep well that you can never reach the bottom of. And this is, this is Christ. These are his resources. This is what we have access to, the innumerable riches of Christ. Uh, how many of you have been to the Swedish Institute here in town? It's like one of my favorite places to go. Um, yeah, it looks like the Martins aren't here today, but, but uh, we conducted their wedding at the Swedish Institute. It was awesome. It was great. Uh, and it's such a beautiful place where you can just get lost in, right? Uh, you can go from room to room, and you see in each of these rooms, there's fabrics on the wall, there's ornate furniture. And I'm sure that if you pulled open the drawers, you'd see lots of really cool things in there as well. Um, you know, different entire companies sponsor each of these rooms and just pour an amount, like a huge amount of wealth into them. And it leaves one thinking that after you visited there, you've only scratched the surface in terms of what's awesome and incredible to enjoy. But imagine that, or that is just like a small, small, tiny drop in the bucket in terms of the riches that we have access to in Christ. Christ is that big, that glorious mansion that we can explore. We get to see all the beauties of. You'll never exhaust the rooms of his forgiveness and grace. You'll never exhaust his wisdom and his knowledge, especially found in the scriptures. You'll never exhaust the, the beauty that we can experience of Christ uh, in creation. So do you come this morning thirsty for Christ? Thirsty to meet from him? So I invite you to come forward this morning and draw from the innumerable riches of Christ. We saw this in the case of, uh, on Christmas, in the case of the shepherds, that you don't need to be accomplished enough to come and worship him. In the case of the Magi, he doesn't expect you to have totally perfect and buttoned up theology. It's okay to have plenty of questions. He doesn't expect you to be from the right race or from the right country. Just come, come and draw from him. And I know that many people in here were not used to, or some of you might not be used to sacramental theology or, or an Anglican framework, but this is one of the reasons why we baptize infants here, because Christ's grace is absolutely boundless. You know, in the scriptures we see examples of of friends lowering a, a, a paraplegic down through the roof. And what does it say? That that man is healed on account of the faith of the friends, right? Jairus' daughter is healed on account of his faith. In the Old Testament, Elijah heals the widow's son because of the widow's faith. You see, God is constantly seeking after and pursuing people, especially children, because of the faith of another. Let the little children come to me, says Jesus. His riches are innumerable. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that we can access the Father with boldness and with confidence. Didn't that passage just jump up to you this morning? It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. I invite you to take your bulletins home. And I know I, I might say this a lot, but this is, this is useful, especially this week. But take this bulletin home and just meditate on these passages 
and just meditate on the riches and the beauty that we have access to in Christ. So this is the message that Epiphany is about. That what we believe, it doesn't belong just locked up in a box somewhere. No, this is something that belongs to everyone. You and I are recipients of this grace. And in baptism, we practice this. We recognize that this revelation has come to all of our own hearts as individuals and as a household of God. If you haven't picked up on it yet this morning, this is a baptism Sunday. Have I mentioned that? (laughs) I think most people have gathered that. So in this service, I I do kind of want to point out a little bit about what we'll be doing later on in the service. So the Collings are going to be baptizing their twins. Uh, James is going to be reaffirming his baptismal vows. And all of us are going to have a chance to kind of restate our baptismal vows and remember our own baptism. It's going to be a great, great moment for all of us. And the question is going to be asked of all of you whether or not you will support these individuals. This isn't an action just of these, these one individuals. It's not like we're baptizing them and saying, okay, go, great, be a Christian uh, by yourself. We don't have this lone Christianity sort of thing. But this is something that all of us are going to be a part of. All of us are going to be a part of. So in conclusion, I just ask that this will be a moment of all of us to lay down our gifts to the Lord this morning, to lay down our adoration for him. May we come together and worship him this morning. So with that in mind, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for not leaving us alone in darkness and in mystery. Thank you for not leaving us alone to be troubled and and fearful and protective and hoarding of our own kingdoms. But instead, Lord, you came down to us and you gave us your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for bringing us to him through the means of, of star or miracle or friend or scriptures or whatnot, Lord. Thank you for using so many different and creative ways to bring us to Christ. Lord, I pray that this morning we can worship him with an openness of heart and lay down our gifts before him. Lord, I ask this all in your holy name. Amen.